and welcome to another edition of the Pink Sheets Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by fellow senior writer Sarah Carlin-Smith, executive editor Nielsen Hobbs, and executive editor Bowman Cox. We're recording on April 16th, 2021, after a busy week of FDA and COVID-19 news. The nature of the pandemic is changing every day, it seems, but I don't think we expected to hear the agency recommend a pause in administration of one of the available vaccines. Indeed, the FDA and CDC made the announcement after finding six cases of a rare blood clot with low platelet counts among those who had received the Janssen vaccine in the U.S. FDA officials wanted the extra time to determine the extent of the risk and inform providers of how to treat the clots. But the recommended pause ignited a lot of concern and criticism, including fears that vaccine hesitancy would increase, as well as that vulnerable populations who are ideal for the one-shot product would not be vaccinated. And while the pause was not mandated, most states elected to stop offering the Janssen vaccine and canceled or adjusted appointments to give the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. The White House also has assured us that there are ample supplies of the mRNA vaccines to meet the demand. I'm curious what stood out to you, to all of you with these events. Obviously, it's not ideal, but you know, are, are we thinking that this is kind of the, 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 the best way that this something like this could have been handled? I certainly think they made the uh, right call in uh, um, disclosing things very prominently. Uh, you know, there's always going to be a question of uh, whether there should have been a pause. I strongly suspect that if uh, um, we were in some alternate universe where the mRNA uh, vaccines were not available and the J&J vaccine was the only one uh, um, cleared in the U.S., that there would not have been a pause, that there obviously would have been a, uh, a big effort to uh, alert people to the um the possible risk, just like there was that uh, um, effort to alert and uh, uh, mollify the, uh, uh, you know, the anaphylaxis issues uh, as uh, Pfizer began to roll out. There was no uh, um, pause there because that was the only uh, vaccine uh, um, available at the time. It's, uh, um, I think, a little uh, perhaps uh, frustrating for uh, um, uh, FDA and perhaps everybody else that this kind of, that they, uh, all they have is this kind of, kind of uh, air horn uh, um uh, style uh, technique of communication that they can kind of uh, raise a ruckus and uh, um, hope that uh, people get the message and then uh, um, adjust their uh, behavior accordingly. Uh, you know, the physicians were kind of uh, are aware of it that, uh, you know, patients think it might be related and that, uh, um, you know, the appropriate treatment is uh, um, is offered it, uh, uh, when it uh, when it happens. So, uh, you know, I think it's uh, um, a uh, a reflection of kind of where we are in terms of the vaccine rollout and uh, just kind of the uh, the difficult uh, nature that sort of FDA finds itself in into trying to sort of kind of to uh, um, communicate but uh, not dictate uh, medical practice. Yeah, it's like you know one of the things that really didn't kind of make a whole lot you know in the in the making of the rounds of this one of the things that didn't really come out was a really interesting statistic where they I guess the they kind of were able to figure out you know, kind of the expected and estimate like an expected rate of these types of blood clots, which, you know, are, are it's like one, a one in a million, more than one in a million chance already. But they, they were able to kind of figure out the expected rate of these clots versus what's actually happened. And it was something like, like three times the expected rate, which, you know, if you saw that in, you know, if, you know, granted, it's only six people, but if you saw that in any, you know, anywhere else, that would automatically raise red flags, I think, you know, for a lot of other drugs, you know, let alone something that's going to everybody in this country. 
Yeah, I mean, it seems like a, a big problem here is just how dangerous these clots can be and that so far they've seen them in a population that, I mean, certainly nobody wants to get COVID, but a population that's maybe slightly more likely to have better outcomes with COVID than others too. So that I think, you know, for them trying to figure out, is there a population where the risk benefit trade-off with this vaccine is different than say, you know, somebody who's 75 or 80. Um, and I, I think, again, I think the treatment um, issue with these types of clots and again, the corresponding low platelets seem to be a big factor in how they handled this because um, it seemed like it, it might, physicians might inadvertently treat somebody the wrong way and worsen the situation. So it became really important to have a very clear, prominent notification so people would know what to look for and communicate with people when they, you know, see these clinical presentations to make sure they don't, you know, um, use the wrong treatment. It maybe would have gone down better if they could have had a background video of people doing Happy people doing post-pandemic things uh, <laughs> with some happy music. That's how it's usually done. <laughs> I do really agree with Matt, though. It's hard. I, I, I do wonder if their decision would be different if we didn't have the mRNA vaccines and so much more of the mRNA vaccines in the U.S. than the Johnson Johnson vaccine. The problem becomes, I think, if you're concerned about how this impacts public perception is, like, do people appreciate the nuance of the differences between the vaccines? And then, um, you know, again, this vaccination effort needs to be global. There's obviously reasons why the J&J vaccine might be better in a lot of populations worldwide. And, you know, so there's global impacts, of course, I think, always for the U.S. Um, in making moves like this as well. Well, and then you had the uh, the CDC Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices was supposed to we a lot of people thought make a you know make a, a recommendation on on how to proceed here, and instead they decided to wait to get before saying anything to get more data on this, um, which angered people even more because you know we're now it turns out they're they're going to meet again uh, uh, at the end of next week. Uh, I believe it's the twenty third. Um, you know, to talk about this more, uh, you know, hopefully, and maybe make up make a decision. But um, you know, it, it, again, is you know, and I I think Sarah's right that the you know the the this would the, this wouldn't have been yeah you know, we wouldn't have been sitting here kind of in a holding pattern on this kind of wondering what to do and speculating and everyone kind of you know in that kind of limbo mode if um, you know if there wasn't anything else available. Yeah, I'm very uh, sympathetic to. Uh, um uh, uh, ASIP's uh, plight there, those were kind of that, uh, um, uh, you know, they kind of were kind of, uh, uh, were sort of stuck holding the, uh, um, the short straw. Those were kind of that, uh, you know, FDA and, uh, uh, CDC leadership could say, uh, um, uh, you know, we're, we're, um, exercising an abundance of caution, but you all, you all think it's fine, right? So, uh, we can go, uh, we can go further <laughs> than, uh, you know, they didn't have any more information than, uh, um, really, uh, um, you know, uh, um, uh, the folks who were up at the podium the day before uh, um, saying that there needed to be a, uh, a, a pause uh, 
had. So they sort of didn't want to sort of be uh, be the ones giving a green light without uh, um, without more information. And so that that's why we got that delay. Were were you all surprised that the the White House had to uh, you know kind of defend this decision a little bit and kind of say like you know, come out with the, uh, you know, we had nothing to do with it. This is completely a scientific decision that that also came out, which, you know, led to some criticism because states weren't, were kind of blindsided by the, uh, you know, the, the move at, at like 8 a.m., you know, like the rest of us were and had to and had to make all these adjustments on the fly to the to the people who were all the millions of people who were supposed to get vaccinated that day. I mean, it seems like they were trying very hard to kind of do the opposite of what, you um, people criticized during the Trump era of the COVID response, which is to really have the politician side of this step back. Obviously, there are people that feel like there's political consequences for this, for the Biden team. Um, And the other thing is that technically, I know it doesn't seem like it seems like people are like taking this as sort of like a mandatory pause. I guess technically FDA has really basically strongly recommended a pause right and states could or in particular cases um you know they could make decisions on a patient by patient basis that the risk benefit balance Mm -hmm. does make sense to still provide somebody the vaccine now it seems like in practice nobody wants to be the one to go against fda (laughs) (laughs) um which i i can imagine um right yeah it would be hard to make to want to be in that position where you're going against the FDA and CDC as a state or um, even as like an individual cl- clinician with one person in front of you right now. Yeah, I mean, technically, if you have some J&J vaccine in the refrigerator right now in, you know, in your in the pharmacy or wherever, you can still give it there. There's no there's nothing stopping you. Um, you know, the, 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 like you said, though, what, would 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 you be would you be comfortable doing that? I, I don't know. And I was surprised that a number of states, I mean, as much as this was a surprise, I think New York, I'm not sure if it was the whole, I think it was the whole state, not just New York City, was basically saying if you had an appointment to get J&J that day, they were going to be able to give people the MNRA vaccines. And I saw reports of like that in other places. So it is pretty interesting and impressive that actually, given everything we know about the challenges with the vaccine rollout in many cases, police were able to pivot pretty fast and not have to delay appointments and so forth. Yeah, that, w- that was really impressive. And, um, you know, but, but, but again, you, it, you know, and this came up at the ACIP meeting, too, that you, you still run into situations where you have populations for one reason or another that, you know, either you have people who don't want to come back for the second shot or you worry won't be able to come back for the second one. And, you know, the, the, those kinds of logistical you know, things, I, I guess there's a significant pot number of people who can't get an mRNA vaccine. So they're kind of left, you know, uh, waiting for this to be resolved, too. So there's still a lot of issues that need to be worked out here. I suppose if you get the J&J vaccine, you're still uh, protected from liability, the same as before. It's a good yeah. question, uh, Bowman. I, uh, um, you know, they, they have not changed the EUA or, or ASAP has not changed its recommendations. So I think that's still uh that's still in effect. Yeah, it's an, interest, an interesting way to, to, to think about it. I mean, it makes, it makes you wonder if people are still actually giving them out, at least maybe a you know, clinic-by-clinic basis or something. Right. Well, continuing with the COVID response, we also received a new guidance from the FDA this week on virtual facility inspections. Bowman, you took a look at this for us. What were your big takeaways? 
Well, it's something that people have been waiting for, and um, I think probably the, uh, uh, you know, it's been pretty exasperating for people in industry uh, that the agency has been so slow to come up with um, a policy and a commitment to doing these um, sort of live remote uh, video inspections that a lot of other regulatory agencies have been doing during the pandemic. Uh, in fact, um, the European Medicines Agency and the UK MHRA have been doing them since uh, pretty early on. In fact, the EMA even did one at uh, one of Pfizer plants in the U.S. Uh, to approve its COVID vaccine in Europe. So there's a lot of this that's been going on, but for some reason, it's been very slow at the FDA to come up with a a commitment to do them and a policy um, for how they would do it. But it's here now. And so, um, and it's something, uh, you know, that that the industry has been clamoring for. And the main reason is because uh, uh, lack of uh, an inability to conduct pre-approval inspections has held up approvals. And, uh, you know, a lot of these, I mean, these are like user fee funded, uh, inspections that just weren't being done. Oh, so Bowen, do you think we will see a whole lot of uh, um, approvals now that they've got this uh, guidance out? You know, we've written a bunch about the, the various products that have been uh, um, delayed uh, um, because of this. And do you think we'll see that uh, reverse quickly or what's the what's the prognosis? The way this thing is uh, written, it seems to be that's going to be the priority here is uh, pre-approval inspections. So I think going forward, we're not going to be seeing these delays. The policy has been, you know, um, if there's no information about a facility that they would just miss the approval date. Uh, if there's adverse information, they would issue a complete response letter. Now they have another tool that's um, they would go to first. Hmm. So I think that situation is going to be get a lot better. Now they have um, the guidance includes, uh, you know, some. Uh, information about the technologies that the agency is willing to use. Uh, they're among the you know different technologies that a lot of people have been using uh, to host regulatory inspections by other authorities around the world and also for their own audits of their contract manufacturers and, and of their own facilities. So I think um, most people by now uh, are probably um, uh, in, uh, prepared to host inspections, and the FDA inspections are not going to be uh, really different from the other ones that they've been doing. Uh, but this is a good time to check to make sure that um, the processes that you have in place are consistent with uh, how the FDA is planning to go about it. Um, there's one caveat uh, that's uh, mentioned in several places in this document that uh, if uh, there's any hint of data integrity problems with your facilities, they're probably not going to do one of these remote inspections hmm. um, because uh, there has to be a certain level of trust. Um, uh, they also stress that, uh, you know, please don't call them to offer to be inspected. It's uh, their choice of who to inspect when 
uh, they'll contact the company if they want to do one of these virtual inspections. And uh, another sort of technicality about it is they don't call them inspections, they call them evaluations. And uh, that has more to do with just, you know, the particular way that um, the regulations are set up for the FDA. So it would, I, I don't know all the ins and outs of it, but it would cause enough problems to call these inspections that uh, that they won't call them that. But they're exactly the same as inspections. I remember that uh, uh, issue coming up when the uh, um, the first EUAs were uh, were coming out that there there wasn't going to be an FDA inspection because it wasn't an approval; it was just an EUA, and uh, that various were kind of the you know kind of that legal uh, dance they had to do to sort of kind of do what they needed to do in terms of sort of kind of uh, uh, making the uh, the assessment, but they couldn't uh, use that formal language for uh, for whatever reason. Very uh, very interesting. Do you see this? carrying on for kind of after the pandemic? Will this be a new normal? Will this just kind of sort of expand FDA's armamentarium in terms of sort of kind of uh, uh, monitoring uh, manufacturing? Or is it just something they're going to get uh, um, get behind them and then uh, um, move on, move away from once they're able to uh, to travel more, uh, more readily? I think that's still to be determined. Um, my guess would be that uh, as the uh, agency gains experience with it, they'll um, get a better idea of where it should fit in, into their um, into their toolbox. And if it doesn't have a long-term place, then they won't do it. But my guess is that it probably would have a place because um, it's a lot less expensive than doing all this traveling. And uh, there's, um, you know, it, it's a different way of assessing a facility that has its own pluses and minuses. So uh, I would think, I, I know other agencies are plan like um, the UK MHRA is planning to um, use them going forward, and, and they have this concept of hybrid inspections, which makes um, a lot of sense where you would um, do a lot of it remotely like this, and then uh, you might have uh, one inspector kind of pop in to do a quick check on some of the things that you really, really can't do remotely. So um, there is a lot of potential for it. Sorry, I guess, I guess I'm uh, I, I'm curious, if, you know, I mean, just uh, with all the caveats you, you mentioned there that, uh, you know, the FDA has to request that, that, you know, to do one of these and, you know, they're only going to be for pre-approval inspections and, and or you know etc you know is this really going to make a dent in the backlog that's built up over the last year i mean it, it it seems like that you know especially since like you said fda is going to be taking they're probably going to take their time and make you know to kind of get comfortable with this i mean it is this just going to be something that you know we're going to hear about the first one and then people are going to be like i want my virtual inspection and you know i can't even get somebody on the phone and you know all that kind of stuff derek that's a great question uh we can see that uh yes there's a real commitment to using this tool in pre-approval inspections it's going to be available for surveillance inspections and there certainly is a backlog of them uh how confident uh the agency would be in uh, what it sees during one of these inspections um, would would be kind of an issue in, in, in whether it, it could um, count it as a complete, you know, it, it, um, make decisions on it that, that you would normally do with a site inspection. So uh, 
we'll just have to see. It would be great if they could work through some of that huge backlog this way, but um, we'll just have to see what happens. One thing that uh, I know has been frustrating for a lot of companies that um, uh, where they had like a warning letter or other official action indicated uh, and they had to remediate their plant and then COVID hit and uh, they can't really use that plant until uh, it has a follow-up inspection. And so, you know, people have been waiting a long time for follow-up inspections and um, the agency is pretty clear. They're not going to be using these uh, video alternatives uh, for that. Mm, that's interesting because that would see, I, I just immediately thought of this would be a way to kind of get those done a lot, a lot faster. But I you guess know, they, the need the, is, they need confidence to be able to, to know what they're seeing was actually, you know, remediated, I guess. Yeah, the problem is the trust issue. It's the same reason why they won't um, do data integrity inspections. Mm-hmm. Well, just on a related note, I wanted to mention, too, that the Oncology Center of Excellence uh, said this week that they're now requiring um, uh, applications to flag the da- the clinical data that's in the is part of the package that is uh, was uh, uh, drawn from remote um, uh, clinical trials sites or, or remote uh, you know uh, 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 monitoring of a clinical trial site as opposed to actually in a physical put you know uh, gathered at the physical hospital or clinic or uh, whatever. I mean the uh, the idea of this is to increase uh, kind of FDA's comfort level with remote monitoring and decentral and decentralized clinical trials, uh, which is something that we all saw, you know, you know, really come to the forefront here at the, uh, you know, during the last uh, during the last year. That's a great point, Derek. And um, uh, these uh, so-called BIMO inspections are specifically included under the new um, remote uh, evaluation policy. Well, it'll be yeah, an excellent uh, chance for uh, FDA to gather some data about the uh, 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 remote uh, uh, data collection. And, uh, you know, sort of we've got this, uh, um, you know, sort of horrible and unfortunate sort of natural experiment uh, um, going on by sort of kind of everything being disrupted by uh, by COVID. But it, uh, you know, could provide an opportunity for, uh, you know, some uh, long-term adjustments about sort of how uh, um, clinical trials are conducted or even sort of kind of uh, um, manufacturing inspections are conducted uh, based on sort of the being uh, being forced to do it this way. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, It'd be interesting. Interesting to see how the technology evolves. Mm-hmm. Well, finally today, we look at a new era dawning at the FDA's Center for Drug Evaluation and Research. Janet Woodcock seated her position as CEDAR director this week and named Patrizia Cavazzoni as the new permanent center director. Cavazzoni had been the acting director since May 2020 when uh, Woodcock was called to the White House to help with the pandemic response. Uh, uh, Dr. Woodcock is now the acting FDA commissioner, and she also remains the principal medical advisor to the commissioner, which is an interesting title considering her current title, but is now officially out of CEDAR after several decades at the helm. Uh, This was... This was not unexpected. She, uh, Janet has been, um, you know, they've been planning for uh, 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 Woodcock's um, departure, retirement, et cetera, for a long time now because, you know, and, um, but still this is a, this was a, this was a big announcement for those of us who follow the FDA closely. 
Um, Matt, you've probably covered Cedar the longest of all of us, I think. Uh, I mean, what what are your thoughts on on Dr. Woodcock's tenure and the uh, you know the center's future going forward? Well, it is uh, uh, hard to imagine uh, uh, Cedar without uh, Dr. Woodcock. Uh, she's obviously taken some uh, um, some different roles over the years. Uh, been in the commissioner's office and obviously sort of been away uh, um, on uh, um, warp speed and through kind of more uh, um, you know uh, central FDA uh, stuff this past year, but. Uh, um, it really, you know, her, um, uh, you know, she she defines uh, um, what the uh, the modern drug review uh, um, uh, system is, uh, um, for better or for worse, whether you love it or uh, or hate it. She's the, uh, um, you know, you know, she's the person that's sort of kind of uh, has uh, um, overseen its uh, uh, creation and refinement. So, uh, um, you know, what the uh, um, what the next uh, version of this will be under. Uh, um, uh, Cavazzoni, uh, um, you know, remains to be seen. Uh, obviously, they are uh, uh, different people. They've got uh, um, different management styles. Uh, uh, Cavazzoni's uh, uh, coming in, you know, a relative outsider, although she's obviously been at the uh, um, uh, agency for uh, for a while now, but not nearly as long as uh, um, as Woodcock uh, um, uh, has been. And she's uh, been uh, overseeing Cedar uh, remotely, so it's just a very different. Uh, um, uh, different approach uh, um, that, uh, you know, once everyone uh, um, gets back into uh, what out to the extent that they can with the uh, the crowding issues, it'll be uh, um, it'll be an adjustment for everyone not to uh, um, not to have uh, Dr. Woodcock in that uh, um, in that office anymore. So uh, um, it's kind of interesting to, to sort of taking place just as sort of kind of a uh, um, a new Padufa will be coming online, uh, you know, I guess sort of uh, in a um, little over uh, um a year uh, now, uh, um, next uh, um, next falls for when the uh, the new one uh, kicks in. So it'll sort of give some uh, um, some ramp up speed and through kind of this. Uh, um, this will be the first uh, uh, Woodcockless uh, um, uh, Padufa uh, that uh, um, to uh, that we'll uh, we'll have to uh, to go through. Yeah, ever. I think she's she's been at FDA since before <laughs> before there was Padufa or any user fee. I think. Yeah, um, yeah it's you know. I, the 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 people we talked to, uh, you know, indicated that you know Dr. Cavazzoni has been running Sear just fine, you know, over the last year. I mean, I, I suspect, you know, it, and I I interviewed her, I believe it was back in November, December, and she talked about how you know she still was, you know, talked to Dr. Woodcock every once in a while, but it wasn't because of the the firewall with warp speed. She was she couldn't you know talk uh, you know extensively about what's going on or ask you know kind of those kind of questions, but. Yeah, you know, it, it it seems like you know think things are still going well. The the office directors now that that uh, or that reorg and uh, the office of new drugs is finished. Um, you know they they've all been in place for a while now, so um, there there's a good base of of experience still around her with the deputy center directors. I mean Bob Temple is still there. Doug Throckmorton is still there. Um, so, uh, she's got, you know, if she does have questions, she has a lot of people, a lot of, a lot of institutional knowledge to lean on, um, as well as Dr. Woodcock herself. I, I don't think that, you know, she would refuse to take a call from <laughs> Patricia Cavazzoni up in the commissioner's office at this point. Um, yeah. Although yeah. one of the things you, uh, you mentioned in your, uh, um, great story, which we'll link to in the, uh, in the show notes is, uh, you know, this does, uh, um, you know, kind of, we're kind of, uh, Offer some clarity as to sort of kind of what uh, what's going to happen with Dr. Woodcock, uh, um, you know, what, what her next uh, what her next role at FDA is going to be. 
Yeah, that that yeah, that there there had been a lot of speculation of you know it, whether you know I mean we're we're all still waiting for the Biden administration to make a decision on who's going to be the nominee for FDA commissioner, and you know even though a lot of people think uh, Dr. Woodcock is running, there's another story this week about other potential candidates you know kind of be floating around. Um, so there there had been questions about you know if she doesn't if Dr. Woodcock doesn't isn't the nominee, what will you know, what will she do next? Will she retire? Would she go back to Cedar? Would she do something else, you know, in, in, you know, in, at the agency? Um, and, you know, this seems to, you know, this is, you know, she's closing one door in terms of, you know, where in terms of going back to Cedar. So, you know, the options are, you know, kind of uh, are, you know, smaller now than, uh, you know, than, she, than they were, uh, you know, a few days ago. So uh, another one of the things that I think, you know, people are going to start wondering about is, you know, or, or at least trying to gauge is, um, you know, how Dr. Cavazzoni is going to handle, um, you know, some of the, the public relations parts of the job and, uh, you know, just kind of the, the, the uh, looking clo- more closely at kind of the management, how she manages everybody. Uh, there have been some talk about, you know, maybe a different management style than Dr. Woodcock. And, um, you know, I think just about every listener on this podcast knows that, uh, Dr. Woodcock herself was not afraid to speak in public. She 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 testified at really contentious hearings on Capitol Hill a bunch of times. Uh, she's given speeches that have been we've heard we've all heard them that that take she's not afraid to take positions on um, you know uh, that that might be controversial on 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 certain topics. So um, I'll be curious to see how Dr. Cavazzoni handles that aspect of the job. If you know the first time she gets called up to Capitol Hill or the first time she has to give a you know a speech, whether it's in front of the you know it's at a, at a Cedar All Hands meeting or at a conference or so forth, where she's asked some of the questions by the stakeholders and and uh, you know industry et cetera, you know kind of how how she uh, you know she handles that. Yeah, she appeared at our I think you interviewed her at our FDA uh, CMS summit uh, um, uh, at the end of last uh, last year. So she's not. Uh, um, uh, you know, sort of not sort of kind of isolating herself uh, um, uh, from public appearances, but uh, you know, sort of kind of the, that uh, um, that Washington uh, um, hot uh, hot seat is uh, um, uh, you know a, a challenge for anybody. So we'll have to see how she's uh, able to handle it if she if she ends up in it. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So it's an, another thing to watch as as we as we go on as we move forward here. Well, that's all for this week. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this and previous podcast episodes on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Spotify by searching for Pharma Intelligence. And if you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to the Pink Sheet Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery with Sarah Carlin-Smith, Matt Hobbs, and Bowman Cox. Stay safe, and we'll see you next time. Music